Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The total amount that would be wiped out by the slowdown of the world economy uh, is going to be between now and 2026, four trillion dollars. Mm. This is the size of Germany GDP gone. Uh, and when we when we look at the picture, we are asking what are the drivers and of course what can be done. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy this week from Washington DC for the meetings of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. Though as you'll hear, I haven't entirely escaped the crisis battering the UK. It's the first of these meetings they've been able to hold 100% in person since before COVID, which might have added an upbeat tone to the proceedings if the news from the world economy hadn't been so bleak. The IMS Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, kicked things off with that warning that recession would blow a Germany-sized hole in the global economy by 2026, and that rather set the tone. It's inflation that's causing the trouble. Inflation and central banks' efforts to control it, which have produced the largest, most synchronised increase in interest rates the world's seen in 30 years. In a few minutes, we have a report from Maria Eloisa Caburo in Brazil on the way high inflation's infecting daily life in Latin America and upending the region's politics. We also go to Beijing to find out exactly what's involved in covering the Chinese Communist Party Congress, happening next week and, we're told, hugely important for cementing the rule of President Xi Jinping. Though as Bloomberg correspondent Callum Murphy explains, working out exactly what's happened is going to be a challenge. But first, here's some of the conversation I had with my friend, the Financial Times senior economic commentator, Martin Wolf. The event was hosted by the Institute for International Finance and moderated by its president and chief executive, Tim Adams. He started by asking us what on earth was happening in the UK. Martin, tell me about your new prime minister. What's she going to do? Well, in my, I think my last column on them ended up these people are mad, bad, and dangerous. They have to go. <laughs> this was a serious understatement. So, Yet somehow so, they're still here. Yes, so, oh, I didn't expect them to go. I just want history to, to note that I called it. We have a government that came in with a plan. Uh, a plan is far too fancy a word. Uh, a, uh, uh, a manifesto agenda. Uh, of how Britain will be fixed forever, uh, essentially of an idealised Thatcher, without the fact that Thatcher was a great politician, which is quite an important distinction, uh, or in the American context, uh, Reagan, uh, Reaganism, and he was also a great politician, which these people certainly aren't. I'm not sure they even now understand it. I'm very happy to talk about the economics and why it's all problematic and what on earth does the Bank of England do when everybody can see that the government is run by lunatics. 
But the really interesting question is how, uh, I'll finish here, is how this happened. And I think the answer to that is in extreme form, we are going through a political crisis, uh, crises in the political institutional system, which we are also seeing in different ways in some other G7 nations, not all. And, uh, and this has become increasingly obvious over the last at least 12, 15, 20 years. It depends when you start. The Conservative Party coalition doesn't work anymore. And uh, in this case, a really rather small part of the Conservative Party coalition from an electoral point of view, but a large part of the membership, which is tiny now, really tiny, chose a prime minister who represents at most perhaps a third, it depends on how you look at it, of the, of the views of the members of parliament. And uh, that's what we're living with. Let's give her a little bit of credit. There is uh, an ambition to have capital formation focus on supply side growth. Wouldn't you say there are some elements there that are worth pursuing? It is true that the UK has lagged behind um, other countries since the global financial crisis in terms of what looks like its sort of potential growth rate. I mean, none of them are looking great, right. but the UK was definitely had taken a step down post global financial crisis. And some of the ideas in the quasi Kwarteng's growth collection of ideas <laughs> to maybe not plan were, were perfectly good, but they involved some difficult things like planning reform to really insist that houses get built or make it easier for big infrastructure programs to get built. One problem with some of that agenda was that a lot of the natural enemies are conservative supporters, um, the people who don't want big housing estates built in their backyard. Right. Um, and another was that this, we've already gone quite far down this road with Margaret Thatcher to the, to the extent that it was a deregulatory agenda, a low tax agenda. We'd already gone further than most other countries. There are diminishing returns. The major issue is a program like that we have not has not been centred around tax cuts in the past that were unfunded. And to make that kind of gamble at a time when the markets were quite likely to punish, punish that in a way that would be completely self-defeating, uh, I think was, was the really foolish thing. I mean, if you want growth, you don't tank the currency and lead to a further run-up in borrowing costs that's actually going to cost you more in the long run and probably hurt growth. Oh, and by the way, in order to reassure about the long-term fiscal strategy. You're looking at around 40 to 50 billion pounds, more squeeze, more austerity than George Osborne did. Um, and a lot of that, the easy things to do, like cutting public investments, that will hurt growth much more than any of these tax cuts would ever help it. You can't do Reaganomics in the UK, period, but you <laughs> surely can't do it in the middle of a world crisis. I mean. Come on. Um, but the other question you asked is, would it work economically? And as I've tried to explain, I can go through it. The answer is no. Uh, the, um, we don't have a very deep problem of personal um, incentives. Our tax ratio is, by the standards of most of our peers, pretty low. We're not the US, and we will never will be. Um, we have incredibly low rates of corporate investment. Um, but the, the, the tax on corporations that they're going to introduce is the one that was introduced by George Osborne, which did nothing for corporate investment, which, by the way, I said at the time, 2015, if I think, wouldn't. 
it, it's economically frivolous, to put it bluntly. So Andrew is in a tough spot. He's got to fight inflation. <clears throat> At the same time, he's in, in, the, in the guilt market today uh, and maybe extending for weeks to come. The Bank of England's in a tough spot. How does he navigate this? Um, well, I think what he has to do is uh, use every institutional means he has, and it may or may not be enough, to uh, cajole behind the scenes the, uh, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister into putting forward a fiscal plan which looks uh, sustainable. If they have a fiscal plan which looks sustainable, then the pressure on sterling and on the gilt market you know, was clearly going to have much higher interest rates than before, but that was going to happen anyway for various reasons, and that will affect the public finances, so that's important. But it, the, the central bank cannot maintain stability in the bond market for a government that has a fiscal plan which everybody regards as crazy. This is that now we get into a problem that is going to be faced by other places, not least the ECB when it thinks about Italy. We're going to have a dynamic with a lot of countries about how much do you let investors make a new judgment about the long-term sustainability yeah, yeah. of debt without, that, is, that is harsh. Um, how do you let that happen whilst, uh, but avoid sort of greater risk to financial stability? The ECB's problem is going to, in my view, which is why I've tried not to write about, going to be even bigger. It's a nice segue into Europe, and then I'm going to turn to the audience. You and I were in Munich a few weeks ago for a conference. The outlook for Europe is pretty uh, bleak, given energy prices, potentially energy rationing, uh, obviously a war on the eastern periphery of, of the continent. Uh, it's tough times ahead. Uh, rates are going to have to go up as well as, we, as we've seen. How do you see Europe? And, and throw in politics. We have had elections in Sweden. We've had elections in Italy which have turned decidedly to the right, although we can debate about how right it truly is. Some of it is, is less, um, uh, uh, less problematic than, than maybe the headlines. How do you see Europe, given that we were just uh, in Germany? Well, let's go for the context and then think about the policy choices, particularly the central bank. We're going to have, uh, they're going to have a deep recession. And it will, uh, uh, um, and I don't think there's much they can do about it because it's a real shock. And they have obviously done very, very well, I think probably as well as they can, to try and manage the gas situation. And nobody knows how this, well, I certainly don't know how this will play out. But, but given what's happened to prices, sheer availabilities, the industrial impact and so forth, it's going to be severe. It's also going to be differentiated. Um, this will be a crisis in which Germany will be really seriously hit. It's, a, it's in the cockpit, as it were. Uh, uh, Italy is also very vulnerable because of its dependence on gas, uh, Russian gas, um, but it's worked quite hard to get to other supplies. But it's clearly, there's a big, huge, real shock. And that follows the real shock of COVID. So there are two massive real shocks. That's the first point. The second point is at the EU level, I would say, and I include the ECB here, overall, the political response to these crises, given that it has been so far remarkably good. By and large, they managed this as well as you could really have imagined. Third point, however, is that the real tensions, I think, are to come. And, um, and they will come in two directions, uh, people and markets. Uh, the people level is, um, will people 
be willing to accept the policies on Ukraine uh, in the context of this. And the other point is the ECB is tightening. As you say, there is going to be immense political, uh, political pressure coming from the economics. How is the new Italian government going to fare? And is the ECB going to be able to stabilize those debt markets? So there are huge questions about the future. You will be excited to hear that I don't completely agree with Mark. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Normally I would match him, you know, step for step down the dark alley of pessimism and gloom. Um, And God knows we might be there. Um, But although governments have not been good at some things, the storage levels are incredibly high. Mm-hmm. They have actually brought a lot of the gas imports, LNG imports on stream faster than many people expected a few months ago. Um, we are um, energy uh, sort of consultancy bit of Bloomberg BNEF actually estimates that this that the demand uh, for energy for gas going into this winter is running about 17% below the five year average so you've seen quite a big demand response despite i might say governments actually cushioning way too much of the blow and not allowing perhaps enough of that um, to happen with these massive fiscal programs of France and, and Germany if you have a reasonably mild winter Um, That could actually mean that prices fall quite dramatically. And then you get a positive um, uh, reinforcing effect where Europe is not having to spend quite so much suddenly importing gas. We think at the moment it would have to be about 5% of GDP, and that's one of the things that squeezes the economy, pushes it into recession. So I do think there is a possibility that in a few months' time we will sort of say, well, Europe's got too much gas. How did that happen? It isn't our sort of main scenario. But I think this is probably the one area where I think the risks are potentially on the upside. Where I agree with you is I think there's the seeds of real solidarity issues. So the German plan, they're not going to spend 200 billion. They always say they're going to spend a lot of money. And then in a sort of Germanic way, they find a way to spend much less. Um, We think it'll be less than that. But you are right that it sends the French plan, the German plan, sends a signal to Central Eastern Europe that they're willing to just spend all it takes to cushion their households and the countries that are the most affected that right. can't do that right. um, are, are sort of left on the sidelines. Yeah. Eastern Europe is important. And if you get a very hard winter, the question of sharing of the available stock of gas becomes very critical, and I think we don't have an answer to that. But I, there is a possibility things will be better. Let's uh, turn to the audience. This gentleman right here. Thank you. Uh, Matthew Saul, IFC. Um, according to the San Francisco Fed and quoted in Bloomberg, this past summer, uh, supply factors account for more than half of the current level of inflation. Housing is expensive because we hadn't invested enough in it. Supply chains are stretched uh, because we hadn't invested enough in onshore uh, manufacturing. Energy, yeah, there's a war. To solve it, we need to invest more. Raising interest rates doesn't exactly encourage investment. In fact, it makes everything more expensive. So do we actually have a death spiral of inflation because central banks are using the wrong instrument for the job? In my view, it's a fairly simple one. To create a lot of inflation, you need a lot of demand relative to supply. So, uh, sort of pretty basic. So uh, if supply was more constrained uh, than we realized when the, uh, um, the boom, ex- uh, when the, um, recovery from COVID occurred, that was an argument for having a 
greater demand contraction, not less, because it was constrained. So the basic logic of this just makes no sense to me. That would be a case for saying even more strongly what I thought, uh, that once it was clear that we're going to have a very, very strong recovery, the unbelievably easy monetary policy of 2020, which I wrote my first column worrying about inflation in May 2020, uh, combined with this massive fiscal expansion was bound to be inflationary. So once that stops and is halted, we would expect inflation to fall a lot because those temporary factors go. The energy scene is not temporary as far as I can see. Well, if it's a permanent supply constraint on energy, then that's part of the story of what you have to uh, uh, adjust to. But the problem is now, if you look at inflation, core inflation is really quite high. It's not just headline for the, which is basically food, energy, these elements. And core inflation is high because we've got an overstressed, we've got an overstressed uh, supply uh, situation worldwide. Um, demand therefore has to be contained somewhat, ideally in ways that would um, allow um, investment to rise, which is why, coming back to our earlier discussion, the fiscal monetary policy mix that we are proposing in the UK is again nuts. Unfortunately, my watch tells me it's time we've got to go. Uh, Martin's new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, will be out January. January. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. There's no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. So wrote John Maynard Keynes about inflation in 1919, supposedly quoting Lenin. In Latin America, double-digit inflation today has started to undermine the rule of law in some countries, and the argument over who's to blame for rising prices has hit the streets. Here's Brazil economy reporter Maria Eloisa Caporo. Eggs are the worst. You have to be rich to buy them nowadays. A millionaire even. That's Maria Lecedesma, a shopper in the Colombian city of Rio Hacha, near the border of Venezuela. 
It's eggs, cheese. I honestly don't see anything that's cheap in my consumption basket. She's 36 and takes care of her father. And she says that in order to do that, she will need 2 million pesos just to barely get by on a regular month. That's about 400 US dollars. Eggs used to cost her 5 cents, but now they've doubled in price. And eggs are just really one in a number of basic food items that have gotten more expensive in the last year. Milk went up 38% and plantains 66%. It's not just Colombia. It's happening all across Latin America. High inflation is widening the gap between the rich and the poor in the most unequal region in the world. At least one-third of the population in Latin America will meet the criteria for being poor. And if some estimates are true, they will face an inflation rate that is a full percentage point higher than that of the rich. The pain from inflation is upending politics in this region of the world, and politicians who want to stay in power are racing to find ways to help their constituents pay for the gas and groceries. In Colombia, Marieles, that woman who struggles to buy eggs, she voted for Gustavo Petro, who got elected this year as the first left-wing leader in the country's history. She believed things would change under Petro and welfare benefits would increase. But inflation remains her main concern. And that's because inflation is above 12% for the poor and the vulnerable, but it remains at single digits for the rich. The vulnerable spend more of their consumption budget in food staples, just at a time when inflation is driven by food. So that makes inflation higher for them. In Brazil, inflation for the poorest hit two digits months before it did so for the rich. Now, consumer prices are falling for everyone, but mostly on the back of recent tax cuts. Here's Ernesto Revilla, head economist for Latin America at Citigroup. This round of inflation is even more harmful for poverty levels and income distribution because it's affecting food prices and in the initial stages, energy prices such as gasoline and electricity. So the day-to-day -day lives of consumers is more difficult. Petro's government might now need to cut long-standing subsidies that helped lower gasoline prices in order to free up money to make higher welfare payments to the poor. And with that, He's risking protests from drivers, truckers, and many of his own borders. How to ease the pain from inflation without breaking the bank is a dilemma that many other governments in the region face, and it's grabbing the attention of world leaders. Protesters blocked highways in Panama, strikers in Peru demanded state help for the poor, riots broke in Ecuador over soaring costs of living. Peru and Chile opted for radical change of government as the pandemic steepens long-standing inequalities. Here's Ravilla again. If we consider that there was already discontent in Latin America since 2019 and before, and we put on top of that the worst economic crisis since the Depression and a very unequal health crisis with COVID-19, the probabilities of unrest are clearly increasing. President Andrés Manuel López Obrador 
has managed to keep his approval ratings above 50%, despite high inflation. And that's because he's convinced voters that things would be worse without him. The key might very well be a 22 billion package of gasoline subsidies and social programs that reach many voters. But in parts of Mexico, like the middle class and industrial areas, his enchantment is wearing off. For now, Mexican hardware store owner Jose Zavala remains undecided, but might stick with López Obrador, who is also known by his initials, AMLO. We talk about how expensive things are. Everything is going up. Vegetables, chicken, meat. Meat is really expensive. And that takes a toll in my budget. It's too expensive. Milk, bread, it's really expensive. Zavala is a widower and has his daughter and granddaughter to take care of. And though he distrusts all politicians, he still says that AMLO wanted to change things. Next year, there'll be elections for governing his state, and AMLO's party might have a voter in Zavala. We complain about how expensive things are, but it's only that. And why, I don't really know. I don't really know to tell you the truth, but everything is more expensive now. In Brazil, inflation is one of the main themes in the presidential race. Here's an ad from former president Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who's trying to secure his comeback to the presidency. Olha o tomate, olha a cenoura. No tempo do Lula, as famílias compravam alimentos com Under Lula, families were able to buy much cheaper food staples. But under Bolsonaro, minimum wages barely afford the basic consumption basket. Lula is trying to remind voters that their purchasing power was higher under his presidency. It could be working. On the first round of the presidential election, he got 48% of the votes and is headed to a runoff as the favorite candidate. The incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, had a late awakening to the inflation problem. And back in July, he pushed for a multi-billion social program that included gasoline tax cuts and boosted paychecks to the poor. Bolsonaro plans to keep throwing money at the problem. He's promising more social spending to improve his standing ahead of the runoff. As politicians from Mexico to Chile work to prevent unrest among their citizens, Latin America is proving how high prices of eggs, cheese, and gasoline can disrupt politics. For Bloomberg News from Brasilia, this is Maria Loisa Capurro. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. 
Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, there's an event starting next week in Beijing, which is almost certainly going to be more important for the future of the global economy than this week's IMF and World Bank meetings. But it's also a much tougher gig for journalists to cover, especially foreign ones. The meeting in question is the Chinese Communist Party Congress, which happens only once every five years. And this year is being billed as a critical test of President Xi Jinping's hold on the party and the future direction of China. Well, Bloomberg's government reporter, Colin Murphy, is one of those benighted foreign journalists in Beijing who will be trying to cover the Congress. Colin, thanks so much for for coming on Stephanomics, your debut. Um, This is a party Congress. Um, Now, obviously, I mean, in the UK, we've just had these annual conferences of the major political parties. In fact, we had a report the other day from the the miserable Conservative Party one. And I guess... If you heard those words in the US, you might think of the party conventions that you have in the summer before a presidential election. But this Chinese Party Congress isn't anything like any of those, is it? Uh, not at all. It's, uh, first of all, once every <laughs> five years, and the scale is quite uh, impressive. There's more than like 2,000 delegates will descend on the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. And basically, it's uh, it's a lot of theatre, it's a lot of uh, you know, reinforcing how uh, China's Communist Party has succeeded over the past five years and why it is necessary that China maintains uh, the Communist Party going forward. So it'll be a lot of uh, looking back on achievements and also pointing towards the future. Just to sort of think about it from your perspective, what will you be able to cover and how challenging do you think it will be? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a sort of paradox in a way because, you know, this is a major milestone. And in terms of reporting assignment in China, uh, it's one of the events. But th- even though this is the case, the reality is that our access to the event is, is uh, very limited. Regardless of whether we're there in person uh, or not, uh, access to the actual delegates and to the leaders is, is you know, minimal, in fact, non-existent, I would say. But I would say, you know, access is, is not just a, a, an issue for the Congress itself. It's also uh, uh, an issue generally uh, being a foreign reporter in China. And it's one that's got increasingly harder and, and more more constrained uh, in the past uh, two to three years. Uh, so, f- for example, you know, um, speaking to officials or even academics at universities, uh, which for reporters, 
you know, it tends to be a kind of a low hanging fruit. If you want to get a, an expert quote, you ring up a university and, and, and they, you know, talk to an expert. Even something like that has become increasingly difficult in the end. Uh, if you're lucky, they'll come back to you and say, no, we can't do the interview. Mm. <laughs> so, so that's, that's definitely an aspect. And of course, you know, this also extends to the broader Chinese society because there has been this pronounced demonization of foreign journalists uh, in China uh, through the state media propaganda. When we go out in the field, it can become a security issue. People can get, um, you know, quite uh, sort of aggressive in, in trying to stop people from reporting. So just going back to the, the, the convention, I mean, are we watching video of that and then or you're on the sidelines trying to talk to people? I'm just trying to get a sense of how you physically report it. So it, it will depend on the event, sort of the main opening event will take place on October 16th. And that will be in the Great Hall of the People, uh, which of course is this massive structure in the center of Beijing, just off Tiananmen Square. Most likely what will happen is that we will be sent into quarantine a couple of days in advance to a hotel. Uh, then we will be transported by a bus uh, from the hotel to Tiananmen Square. Uh, they'll bring us up to one of the higher galleries and there'll be rows upon rows of delegates and probably up in the front there'll be uh, a dais with um, you know the leaders and uh, at that event President Xi Jinping will will give a uh, work report a, a long speech which can go on for anything up to three hours um, and I guess what I'll be looking out for in that capacity obviously will be following the speech as closely as possible but also looking for any sort of um, you know, color that we might see on the day. What's the uh, reaction from the audience? What's the degree of applause? Which which part of the speech got more attention? Uh, you know, was there music playing? <laughs> so on and so forth. So basically just trying to capture uh, that moment. There might be some uh, hiccup, which uh, you cannot rely on the uh, TV feed for. So I would say, you know, depending on the, the reporter that you ask, I personally am quite excited about sitting through three hours. I do think it's a historic event. You're really selling it. Anyone who was wondering whether or not to be a foreign correspondent in Beijing, gosh, you're making it sound so good. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit. It's a bit sad in a way that, uh, you know, the access on the ground, which is the whole purpose of being a foreign correspondent, is, is, um, is curtailed. But you cannot replace the fact that we are on the ground in Beijing, that we, we do have access to at least the pageantry, but also talking to people who live in the city and listening to the conversations uh, around the Congress. And much of that is actually related to, to COVID these days. And we do know, we, I mean, we do know that it has hurt, hurt the economy. And I'm, I'm interested, um, as you say, people waiting to see once this Congress is over, whether the government's going to be willing to start living with a bit of COVID. And there's been some talk online about discontent with the policy percolating up through social media and uh, accidents of involving busloads of people being taken into quarantine and then being complaints about that. I mean, would you say that there's been an uptick in, in sort of visible opposition, you know, by, by the standards of communist-controlled China? Definitely. Um, I would say that the more and more people are expressing uh, dissatisfaction with COVID-0. There is definitely more uh, uh, voices coming out complaining about uh, COVID. We only see these sort of protests in, in, in pockets at a very extreme moment. So, for example, during the two-month lockdown in Shanghai, uh, we had a couple of uh, uh, protests. <laughs> 
And then there was, of course, as you mentioned, that bus tragedy where uh, a couple of dozen of people were killed being transported to a quarantine center. And all of these act as sort of like flashpoints where you have a bubbling up of, of uh, sentiment and people become, become quite vocal or expressive on social media. But they tend to die down. So all said, the answer is yes, there's an uptick in frustration with COVID. Whether that will influence any government decision is the next question. And it's unlikely that there will be any major changes. What we might see is some sort of uh, incremental, uh, you know, small measures being relaxed here and there. But overall, the direction of COVID zero still looks like it's, it's going to be in place for some time to come. People who have heard about this Congress will have heard that it's very important for Xi Jinping to seal his position potentially as president for life, certainly for a, for a third term. What should we watch for, for signs that it's been more or less successful for him relatively? Right. Um, so, yes, I would say uh, that what I'll be looking out for anyway in, in the coming weeks will be the combination of the uh, Politburo Standing Committee, right? So this is the top group of leaders. We'll be looking very, very closely to see who exactly <laughs> All of gets them wearing the same suits. <laughs> <laughs> probably, and probably all men as well, I will add. Um, so that will happen uh, roughly around one week after the uh, opening ceremony. We, they will be paraded out and they'll come out in order. And then we will all be jumping on that because we want to know uh, how many people on that uh, standing committee um, have uh, an association with Xi or considered to be part of his, 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 his group. Uh, we'll also be looking at like what sort of backgrounds they have, what expertise they have. Are they more ideological or are they technocrats and so on and so forth. So that's basically the, the key thing, I would say. But we'll also be looking for things that sort of uh, indicate uh, either a consolidation or an elevation of Xi's stature. And one of the things might be like what sort of titles uh, he might get in the process. So one of the titles might be people's leader, uh, which would be a, a sort of an elevation or a confirmation of, of his sort of uh, supreme importance to the party. These are a whole a combination of things that we'll be looking for. But obviously, to get to the specifics of the uh, policies, we'll have to wait until next spring when the uh, MPC takes place in March, usually in March, in Beijing. That's where we'll start to see more granular details emerge. Uh, and also that's the time where, where she will actually get the title of president. That's it for Stephanomics. We'll have more on China next week, and who knows what else. In the meantime, do please rate the show and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi, Yang Yang and Magnus Henriksen. Maya Auerbach and Matthew Bristow helped with the reporting of that Latin American inflation story. Special thanks also to Martin Wolf, Tim Adams, Maria Aloisa Gaburo, Daniel Cavallo, Isadora Colombi and Callum Murphy. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. This episode has been corrected just to accurately identify Kristalina Gorgieva, the managing director of the IMF.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.